Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the ANU and Alan Gingell. National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hey, Darren. It's Tuesday, the 8th of June today in the afternoon, and it's been at least about six weeks, I think, since we last discussed the news. So we have a lot to catch up on and we're going to try our best. We've got a a full slate today. We'll begin quickly with Prime Minister Morrison's trip to New Zealand to meet his Kiwi counterpart, Jacinda Ardern. Second, we'll stay in the Pacific with political turmoil in Samoa after an election. From there, we'll follow up our discussion on Afghanistan with the postscript that the Australian Embassy has been closed indefinitely. Fourth, we'll consider the implications for the remarkable events in Belarus where a commercial airliner was forced down so that some dissidents or a dissident could be arrested. And finally, we'll finish on my current favourite non-conspiracy theory on the origins of COVID-19. So let's get started. We're going to begin with Morrison's trip to Queenstown in New Zealand on the 31st of May, where he met Jacinda Ardern. Now, I don't think I need to provide much background to this meeting, as we've discussed the Kiwi question several times in recent episodes. But in short, there has been or there is an ongoing debate of sorts here in Australia about New Zealand's foreign policy, with worry expressed by some that our Kiwi friends are getting too close to China or getting too far away from us, however you want to characterise it. So there was a lot of things on the table for discussion, but I might just quickly throw it straight to you, Alan, and get your reaction to the meeting. It turned out pretty much as I would have expected, Darren, that that is both sides understood the underlying importance of the relationship and handled the meeting with care. They accentuated the positive, like the travel bubble, and shared interests in the South Pacific and dealt sensitively with the differences like the deportation of New Zealanders who've served a criminal sentence in Australia, even if they arrived here as children and have deep community links, which is a big issue on the New Zealand side. And I have to say that that's the side I'm on with this one. Me too. A big issue of China, they navigated a way through by emphasising the similarity in policy between the two countries, which we've noted before, you and me, and not dwelling on the differences, which are mostly about how we handle China diplomatically. The two of them then issued a 10-page statement, which covered a large agenda, COVID, the South Pacific, bilateral economic cooperation, climate change, global trade, Indo-Pacific issues like the South China Sea and Hong Kong. And I'm sure that, as is always the case with these statements, some of the content did actually represent stuff that was discussed between the two leaders, but others were clearly just noted for the record. I was I was interested, for example, to see the PM expressing his government's, quote, unwavering commitment to a world without weapons of mass destruction, close quote. And now I really do doubt that that was the Australian drafting suggestion, but the statement as a whole did underline just how many issues there are on the agenda. Jacinda Ardern repeated that the relationship with Australia was New Zealand's most important. Interestingly, we don't reciprocate with that message. 
Morrison and Ardern, you don't have to, you know, study them very hard to realise that they're very different personalities and they have different mm. political values and priorities. But they showed that the management of the relationship, as with the earlier foreign ministers meeting, is being conducted carefully and professionally, and that's good. Alan, is a 10-page statement unusual? I can't remember ever seeing something just for a simple bilateral leaders meeting of quite that depth. And if we assume, as you suggest, that not everything in that 10 pages was actually brought up in conversation, I mean, I'm just trying to think, why would you do this? Is it really just about trying to comprehensively project an image of shared interest and togetherness? Or is there some other, I mean, I don't really know what I'm asking. Is it unusual, I suppose, that we would see such a dense statement? No, I don't, I don't think so. I'd have to go back and check what had happened on other occasions. But if you look at Osmin meetings and, and so on, this is a very familiar way in which governments tick the boxes on the issues that are on the relationship. And often these are things which have been talked through by officials in advance of the leaders actually sitting down and discussing things. Yeah, I mean, from my point of view, I haven't actually had a chance to read the statement, but looking at the optics from sort of 30,000 feet, to me, it seemed like the leaders had an overriding objective to show solidarity and quash all of this talk. In my view, much of it nonsense that the two countries are, you know, are drifting apart in significant and meaningful ways. Ardern said, quote, at no point in our discussions today did I detect any difference in our relative positions on the importance of maintaining a very strong and principled perspective, end quote. And Morrison, you could argue, went even further when he said, quote, there are those far from here that would seek to divide us, end quote. And then further, quote, I have no doubt there will be those who seek to undermine Australia and New Zealand's security by trying to create points of difference that are not there, end quote. Now, of course, I'm sure he was talking about voices in Beijing, but I also hope he intended to send a message to some of those contributing to the Australian debate as well. And I can see you nodding, Alan. I mean, oh, man. Yeah. Can we hope that this angsty discussion in Australia about whether New Zealand is becoming new she-land is going to die down for a while? Yeah, that was both a terrible pun and a, and a, a truly awful program. For our listeners who didn't see the ad, it was a, I didn't even watch it. It was a 60 Minutes Current Affairs deep voiceover and foreboding music type show last Sunday night. We can hope. We're, you and I are optimistic. We always hope. We've discussed trans-Hasman differences over China before, and my view has been that the differences have been overhyped by the commentariat on some issues, and they've been magnified by some sort of clumsy diplomacy in others. Hello, New Zealand Trade Minister. And that the differences there are relate, as I said before, basically to ways of handling China diplomatically and on questions like Wellington's scepticism about using Five Eyes linkages, I've said before that I'm with them. One of the problems we have is that China really is about the only story the media wants at the moment. It was interesting to read this transcript of the press conference after the meeting because apart from, I think, just two questions, all of them related either to China or to criminal deportations. 
And so I could understand why Jacinda Ardern was getting uncharacteristically snippy. I don't know if you saw the coverage as the reporters kept going on and on about the subject. And look, one other point to bear in mind is that New Zealand is chairing APEC this year. The Leaders Summit will be virtual, but it does mean that New Zealand has an additional range of issues to consider in connection with China. And I'm sure that's playing into their planning too. Yeah, I agree, Alan. I hope that we don't have to talk about this topic again anytime soon. For our second item, we will stay in the Pacific to the tiny nation of Samoa, which is undergoing a constitutional crisis of sorts at the moment. In early April, there was an election which resulted in a 25-25 split between the incumbent HRPP, led by the long-serving Prime Minister Tuilaipa, and the fast party of Fiamme Naomi Mata'afa, with the tie-breaking seat, there are 51 seats in the legislature, held by an independent. Now, it's complicated, but a bunch of other stuff happened and the courts got involved, and the result being that there was a sort of a legally sanctioned change of government. However, when the fast MPs rocked up to Parliament on the 24th of May, they found the doors locked, police surrounding the building, and they were refused entry. So later that day in the afternoon, a new government was sworn in in a tent outside the parliamentary building, making Fiamme the country's first female prime minister. However, with the incumbent or the, the, the predecessor, Tuilepa, accusing the fast party of, quote, treason. A report just yesterday that I read said that the most recent talks had failed to provide a resolution. Now, we've seen various statements from Prime Minister Ardern, Foreign Minister Payne, the Pacific Islands Forum, and the UN Secretary General, which have all urged the parties essentially to uphold the rule of law and, and sort things out peacefully. Alan, while it's not really a closer or a fair comparison, in reading about this story, I couldn't help but think back to the coup in Fiji back in, what was it, about 2005, 2006, where the, the leader of Fiji's military, Frank Bainamarama, took power then got into a lot of trouble with the international community, but you know remains in power today, having won several elections since. So before I ask you about Samoa, I just wanted to get a quick sort of recap from you on what lessons you learned from that earlier episode. I learned again what larger powers always learn, whether you're Australia in the Pacific or the US in the Middle East or China in Southeast Asia, and that is it's always harder than you think to get smaller sovereign states to do what you want them to do when their political interests point in a different direction. In response to the Bainimarama coup and the subsequent abrogation of the Fijian constitution, we tried several different modes of coercion. Yes, the news, Darren, is that we do coercion too. We <laughs> travel bans on Fijian leaders and were working behind the scenes to secure the country's suspension from the Commonwealth and the Pacific Islands Forum, and none of it worked. Mm. In the end, under a new Fijian constitution, which delivered Bainimarama what he wanted, we had to quietly step back and renormalise relations. Okay, well, turning to this case then, like what can Australia do? What should we do regarding this situation where it's not unreasonable to worry that the country's constitutional system is under grave threat? Yeah, sort of listening to you talking before, I thought to myself, Samoan politics might not be quite as complicated as Israel's, but they're certainly certainly right up there. It's very hard from outside to read it. 
Fiamme Mata'afa is a former deputy prime minister under the current government, and she's the daughter of Samoa's first post-independence prime minister. So this is a tightly knit political elite. The Australian response was really no more that I could find than a tweet from the foreign minister saying that, as you noted before, Australia values our close friendship with Samoa. It's important that all parties respect the rule of law and democratic processes. We have faith in Samoa's institutions, including the judiciary. It's possible that Morrison and Ardern talked about this in Queenstown, but they didn't refer to it in the press conference. So I assume that we are sending messages, but these are being conveyed in a low-key diplomatic way, presumably to ensure that the big guys on the Pacific bloc don't look as though they're trying to bully the smaller players. This is almost certainly good sense. The situation has got a way to go both legally and politically. And for the most part, you hear this talk in the Pacific all the time about the Pacific way. And there's something to it. Talking does matter in the region and both the existing and projected prime ministers met again last week to discuss the differences and say that they'll do so again. Sometimes waiting around and saying nothing turns out to be a perfect diplomatic response. Yeah, I I was watching some clips online and, and I'll have to look for it again and post in the show notes, but there was an interview with Australian Breakfast TV on the ABC, I think, with a woman whose name I forget right now, but a former Attorney General who was the lawyer acting for the FAST party. Mm-hmm. And at one point she was asked, what happens now? Like you've got all these legal judgments which sort of confirm the legitimacy of a change of government. What do you do? And And instead of going sort of for the jugular and saying, he has to leave, this is outrageous, she said, we are going to follow our principles and our traditions of showing respect and talking our way through. And that I was struck by that that's where she went first because there was a follow-up question, which is, and what happens if it doesn't work? And then she got a little bit more critical and said, this is outrageous, you know, you can't just do this. So I think I fully agree with you there, Alan. And look, the further I dug into the story, the more interesting it became. Like The genesis of this issue is a rule that 10%, at least the legal genesis of this issue, shall we say, is a rule that 10% of parliamentarians have to be female, but only five of the 51 possible were females elected in this election. And so this led to an initial court decision that we needed a sixth which required adding one more legislator to the numbers, which was the closest loser, the person who came closest, who was from the incumbent HRPP party. But then you had the independent who'd been between the two deciding that he was going to join the fast party. And you had this further higher court ruling saying, no, you can't just add an MP to the mix. And so that's why we have supposedly a legal status quo of a one vote majority for the fast party. So at this point, I got very confused and I sort of just focused on this fact that incumbents just don't like giving up power. I mean, you mentioned these rally politics, and of course, that's quite heavy in the news right now as well with Bibi Netanyahu, although it seems like he's finally lost and has to give up government, seems to be going full Trump in his rhetoric by saying that if he does lose, it will be the greatest election fraud in Israel's history. And it just seems like yeah, in more and more countries, maybe it's always been true, but in more and more countries to me, it seems like political elites are fomenting the idea that if you lose and if you're defeated by your political opponents, that's an unmitigated catastrophe for you and for your country. And that is then enabling the elites to 
you know, resist the peaceful transition of power, which is an utterly essential feature of democracy. I mean, the Samoan Prime Minister Tuileipa has been Prime Minister since 1998. You know, is it that essential you know, for the history of the country that he stays on? I mean, is this how he wants to be remembered? I mean, I'm sure no one wants to admit that they've lost. But I, you know, I think back to Al Gore's concession, right, into the 2000 US presidential election, and maybe I think we took it for granted a bit at the time. Yeah. It seems to be more of an anomaly than, than the norm these days. Anyway, let's move on to Afghanistan. Look, on the 25th of May, the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister announced the closure of Australia's embassy in Kabul, which was then closed a few days later. They said the decision was made, quote, in light of the imminent international military withdrawal, end quote, which will create, quote, an increasingly uncertain security environment where the government has been advised that security arrangements could not be provided to support our ongoing presence, end quote. So, Alan, we, of course, discussed the troop withdrawal, both by Australia and by the US, in a recent episode. What was notable to me about this announcement or this closure was that it happened so soon after Foreign Minister Payne had visited Afghanistan. And I made me wonder about the sequencing of events. I mean, did she go there just to tell them in person that it was going to close and what was about to happen or not? I mean, what do you think about that? Well, it seems that she didn't tell them. She said that the decision to withdraw was not made until after her visit on the 10th of May and that she didn't mention it in her meetings in Kabul. In the press release issued at the time, she said that she affirmed to President Ashraf Ghani Australia's support for the Afghanistan government and people during this time of change. And she spoke of a new chapter in our diplomatic relationship, which would continue our shared aspiration of peace, stability and prosperity and the development assistance program, especially as it related to advancing the rights of women and girls. Now, the announcement of the closure came just two weeks later. And so, Although it might have been literally true that the decision to close was made by the NSC after the minister was in Kabul, it's pretty hard to believe that the Australian discussions weren't a fair way down the track by then. So I do find it a bit hard to understand how it all unfolded. Yeah. I guess the question is, does it matter? I mean, I I wish she hadn't said all those things to Prime Minister Ghani. They seem very empty now in light of our withdrawal. But do you think this decision will affect our foreign policy interests beyond the broader impact of the troop withdrawal itself? I was surprised that it happened so quickly and that alternatives like co-location with another country or a sort of large reduction in the 10 or so staff who are there would certainly have meant that we were left with only a very symbolic presence. But the symbolic support of the international community for the established government may be something that's going to be really important in the months ahead. So I think the presence of feet on the ground, diplomatic feet on the ground, does matter. I've heard that our allies have been irritated by the speed with which we've cut and run, and that wouldn't be at all surprising because it also cuts across some of their messages. The other big issue is what this decision means for the position of the locally engaged staff who worked for us over the years in Afghanistan, as well as the sort of military interpreters and so on. And for people of my vintage, there are reminders here of Australia's failure to adequately look after local staff in Vietnam and Cambodia 
after the Indochina Wars, and that's getting some political traction here in Australia as we record this. So look, I don't, I don't think this was by any means an easy decision. There are legal implications for DFAT as well in the extraterritorial application of our occupational health and safety regulations that don't apply to the ADF. But I am disappointed that it all came down to this in the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's this is direct sort of result of these larger decisions about troops. And I don't have much to add except to note that the US troop withdrawal is proceeding apace and that the violence is already escalating. And there have been numerous reports of, of Afghan troops already beginning to surrender to the Taliban. And so this does have the feel of, of cutting and running. And I understand that. Like I get the impulse after 20 long years, but you know, the country is not going away. Afghanistan's still going to be there after we have gone. And I wonder whether anyone has realized or thought about the possibility that we will have to deal with this problem again before too long. Do we really think that the Afghan government can survive? And what are we going to do if it doesn't? So I expect you and I will be talking about this again in the future as well as the government. All right. Our fourth item is this bananas story in Belarus where Ryanair flight 4978, which was going from Greece to Lithuania, on the 23rd of May, was diverted by the Belarusian government to Minsk, where two passengers on the flight, a dissident and his girlfriend, were arrested before the flight was allowed to continue. And Alan, you and I discussed this earlier, and we agreed that I I could launch my thoughts on the matter first. So let me make three points. First, it is obviously bad. I mean, people ask how bad. I I don't know. I mean, really bad in terms of rule and and norm-violating behaviour. I read some blogs just the other day about some of the consequences for aviation safety, you know, the, the way in which the Belarusian government used a threat of a bomb in order to sort of force pilots to follow certain procedures to, to land in, in Minsk has downstream effects and, and some of the consequences of the retaliation in terms of Russia and France you know, sort of stopping flights going to each other's countries and, and overflights. Like there are all these things that we don't appreciate not being flight people that sort of are essential to the safety and order that governs air travel that are going to be harmful. So, you know, that's that's obviously terrible. But of course, bad things have been happening, it seems, a lot recently. You, I think of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in, in Turkey, the, you know, the poisoning with ner- a nerve agent of a double agent, Sergei Skripal, and his daughter on British soil. And, you know, more generally, you know, kidnappings and other forms of extraterritorial pressure that have been placed upon dissidents around the world, you know, from their home governments. So this is part of a a larger trend, I think. And second, I think it's important to understand the logic of these actions, right? It is entirely inwardly focused. It reflects paranoid authoritarian regimes who will go to any length to protect themselves. And actions like these are intended to send a message to their own people that it's just not worth resisting the government because there is nowhere you can hide. And so they succeed if they are able to dampen political opposition inside home countries, in this case, inside Belarus. And so third, the challenge then for the international community is to raise the costs of these kinds of norm-violating actions in, in meaningful ways. And that's hard because in this case, there is zero chance that it was done without the permission of Vladimir Putin and probably his blessing. 
and in many ways, the West still needs to work with Russia. You know, Biden is, is due to meet with Putin, I think, in Switzerland later this month, and the Europeans have obviously many different issues that they work and have to deal with Russia on. And you don't want your countermeasures or your response to punish the Belarusian people. And if you escalate too much, people have talked about this fear that Belarus might just integrate fully back in, into Russia. And so that you know, obviously is a, is a potential concern as well. And so it seems like the West has limited certain types of sanctions, which we've already seen, you know, the banning of, of Belavia, the, the Russian national airline, the stopping of EU flights from going over Belarusian airspace, which will cost the government because governments get paid when, when flights fly over their territory. And you'll have other airlines, you know, Singapore Airlines, I think, is, is following suit. So this should cost the Belarusian government quite a lot of money because they'd actually been getting more air traffic in recent years that's been avoiding Ukraine given all the, the drama there. So, and I think the EU is due to meet later this month and we may see yet more sanctions. And I think it's hard for the EU to, to act quickly given their bureaucratic structure. And I think that the part of the problem here is that they did look weak in the aftermath. You had some very bad tweets and statements in the, in the early hours that seemed to downplay the crisis. And because they haven't acted so forcefully in a very public and bold way, because their processes take time, I think some you know have have, have viewed them as being weak. But I think you know, stepping back, these kinds of behaviours are a manifestation of, of of the order that we're in right now. That's more multipolar, perhaps with less adherence to, to rules and institutions than than we've seen in the in the post war period. And I think in one where major powers find it even harder to control smaller states when the latter are really determined. I mean, do you have anything to add to this, Alan? I don't mean to be disrespectful to Belarus, Darren, but I think the last time I thought about the place was back in 1991 when its leader, Stanislav Shushevich, he was there before Lushenko came to power a couple of years later, when he joined Boris Yeltsin of Russia and the Ukrainian leader in blindsiding Mikhail Gorbachev, who was then the president of the Soviet Union, by proclaiming the dissolution of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And the interesting thing at that time was that people who knew about the region were saying that of all the constituent states in the Soviet Union, Belarus was the one that you would have least expected to go. So acknowledging my deep ignorance, I'm just going to join you on that last point you made. Is it true that adherence to rules and institutions is more inconsistent now than it was during the post-war period? I'm not so sure. That, after all, was the time of decolonisation in Africa and Asia. Large chunks of the world were going through quite violent discord and division often flamed much more directly than now by the two great Cold War powers. More so than after the post-Cold War period, that is after the early 90s, you'd have a point there, but at that time, the dominant power of the United States and the rapid spread of economic globalisation gave a much larger group of countries a much more common interest in the rules and, and institutions. So I'm not I'm not sure I'm with you on that. I, I do agree that, you know, things are looking pretty ropey at the, at the moment, but it's just compared with the past, I don't know. You could very well be right, Alan. I don't have that historical perspective. Maybe it's just that it's so much more visible now in the sort of this era of instant communication and social media 
I can follow along a discussion between experts on the region and on European politics and on Russian politics and foreign policy and, and, and really get into the details on Twitter, which is fabulous, and, and blogs and, and so forth. Several times, I think, in the past few years, I've mentioned the work of, of Martin Gurry, who makes the argument that the failures of elites inside countries are now much more visible than they ever have been, thanks to the technology and communications. And that is in part contributing to sort of an undermining of public trust in political elites and in institutions. And it's not that political elites are any more defective than they ever have been. It's just that we see them fail now much more. And maybe that's the case also for the international order and for the management of the order by powerful states, that it's always been this patchy, but now we all know about it. And you and I can bemoan on our podcast that things are yeah. falling apart. Yeah. And does, I don't know, does that matter? I mean, does the slowly eroding confidence sort of lead to great accelerate the trend or does it actually help build support in the public to rebuild the order? I don't, I don't know. But yeah, I think that variable is what's different now. Yeah, yeah, worth talking about. Mm. All right. Finally, let's talk about the lab leak hypothesis, which for those listeners who haven't become wild-eyed conspiracy theorists like myself is the theory that COVID-19 accidentally leaked out of a lab in Wuhan in China. Labs where scientists were are known to have collected, study and possibly manipulate coronaviruses. There's a lot of technical detail that I've been trying to wade through about matters such as furin cleavage sites and gain-of-function research and the 2012 lethal pneumonia cases of the miners of Mojang. Oh, yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and summarise it for our listeners to, by making four points. The first is that we don't know that much more about what happened than we did 12 months ago. And what has changed more is that the possibility of a lab leak has gained in credibility. You know, part of the reason for that is that we've had this WHO mission that we've discussed on the podcast visit and not get all the information it wanted. We've seen the Director General of the WHO sort of you know, express, you know, or leave open the possibility that a leak might have happened. And then there have been a number of influential articles that have been published. I'll post a couple in the show notes that I think have really gained traction in ways that they didn't last year. And so that's that's point one, that the credibility. We've moved from a conspiracy theory to something that's a lot more mainstream. But we're never going to know. This is point number two. We're never going to know whether it actually happened. And that's mostly because China is not going to allow us to know. know. Authorities in China suppressed early information about the outbreak in January of 2020 and did not hand over all the data that was requested by WHO investigators earlier this year. And it's yeah, it's very hard to prove a negative anyway if you're the Chinese, but they aren't making it any easier on themselves. And I've been thinking about this as opposite of the boy who cried wolf problem. Like if you never let anyone cry wolf, then you open yourself up to outsiders who you know cry wolf with no way of refuting them either. The third point, and this is really a self-reflection, is about the social media aspect of this. And this is really about my identity. I mean, I totally dismissed the possibility of a lab leak 12 months ago. And that was because the major proponents of this theory and a more extreme version that this was a bioweapon that had been designed by the Chinese military 
where people like Steve Bannon, Trump, Mike Pompeo, Tom Cotton, and, you know, I define myself in many ways in opposition to them, right? You know, social media is still social. There are in-groups and there are out-groups. And for me, they were part of my out-group. And so if they believed it, it was something I should probably disbelieve, especially when you had what seemed to be credible scientists at the time saying this is a crazy conspiracy theory. And so it's kind of the opposite problem of the Chinese. You know, Trump and his people cry wolf so often, they lied so consistently throughout their time that I was not inclined to believe anything they said, even if there might have been some substance behind it. And this wasn't just me, of course. I mean, it went to all the way up to Facebook, who were censoring posts on this, you know, last year as being misinformation and who made a very notable change just a few weeks ago to stop doing that in light of how the situation had evolved. And the final point I'll make, and this is sort of an observation reading so much material about this in the last month, is that everyone seems to have an agenda. There are many, many scientists who are pushing back against the lab leak hypothesis. But what's been notable about their commentary is that they often attack the credibility of the people who have been writing the main articles. And there are two articles in particular, one by both by former New York Times journalists, actually, it's Nicholas Wade and Don McNeil. And you often see the credibility of the individuals themselves impugned in the pushback. And the other thing you see is uh, those who make the argument that if you put credibility in the lab leak hypothesis, that's equivalent to climate change denial. Like in their argument, the science is so in one direction that you are, you know, no better than someone who is denying climate change. And look, as a non-virologist, all I can say is that the evidence seems to be at least stronger than that against climate change. But I think it's notable that they're really trying to discredit it through these kinds of rhetorical devices. And when you dig into some of the articles, and I'll post another one that just got published in Vanity Fair of all places, you see the complex politics financing and cross-cutting interests both in the scientific community in the US and in the US government, which was funding some of this research that really makes everything very complicated. But Alan, you know, I've been drip feeding you a lot of this information you in the recent weeks. So let me let me throw it to you now. I mean, did I manage to pull you down this rabbit hole with me? Like what has been your reaction to the transformation of this story from the level of Steve Bannon podcasting from his basement? you know, a really a fringe conspiracy theory to Biden announcing an intelligence review of the situation. Yeah. No, I didn't go quite as far down the rabbit hole as you did, Darren. I, I don't think what is happening now ends up being any justification for the sort of claims that Bannon and Trump were and are still making because whatever the truth turns out to be, if we ever learn it, I'm sure it won't be that Chinese germ warfare specialists deliberately released a viral agent with the aim of weakening the West. Yeah. So the the idea of an accident in the in the lab seems reasonable to me, although there's plenty of argument the other way. And like you as a non-virologist, I'm never going to be in a position to make a personal judgment. I thought it was interesting that Biden has so publicly asked for a report from the US intelligence community. And I have to say that I've personally got enough trust in the institutional integrity of the Director of National Intelligence and the agencies to say that if they reach a clear conclusion that is made public, I'll be persuaded by that. And do you think the answer matters? In an operational sense, it doesn't matter much. We're never likely to know the full truth because no amount of pressure will cause the Chinese to lay open their labs to 
Western inspectors. Uh, what should we do? Well, one path, which is the evil bastards can't be trusted, leads to further scientific decoupling, less confident knowledge of what the other side is doing, greater incentives to prepare for the worst, and therefore increased risk. And the other, which is accepting that the Chinese might be dissembling, but that the overwhelming evidence is that if the virus did come from the lab, it was an accident and moving on, that might give us a way to limit the chances of future laboratory accidents, increase transparency, and help work more effectively on responses to future pandemics. Now, the first is more emotionally and politically satisfying. We stand against evil and for our values. The second, bit by bit, in careful negotiation, charts a way forward that may offer greater cooperation and more transparency in future, and at least give the reforms proposed for the WHO a chance. So that's the way I always thought about arms control and it's how it worked during the most dangerous phases of the Cold War. Of the various things we've been reading, I liked the conclusion Daniel Engber reached in a piece in The Atlantic where he wrote, it might have started in the wild or it might have started in the lab. We know enough to acknowledge that the second scenario is possible and we should therefore act as though it's true. Mm, mm, yeah, I agree with all of that, Alan. I was asked when we had our live audio chat, the IDC, which we're now holding on Twitter Spaces at the moment, last week, where did I track the, the emergence of this as a, as a major issue? And my reading of it is it came out of sort of the respectable right of centre analysis on Twitter. You know, it was the people who have sort of never the full Trumpists, those that have been open to discussing Trump. And I'm talking about people like Ross Douthat at the New York Times. He, you know, tweeted some of these early articles and that I saw some momentum come from that part of Twitter. And I think some of the most interesting analysis about whether it matters has come from him and from Tyler Cowen, the economist at George Mason, which is to sort of frame the narrative that comes out about China, about COVID. Because, you know, the original narrative, one that existed six weeks ago, could be that this had zoonotic origins that came from the wild and came probably through these wet markets, which are an atavism. They're a throwback to the old China that the government is slowly trying to phase out that don't have anything to do with the political elites inside China or the Communist Party. But what we do know is that the Communist Party, when faced with the outbreak, did it in a very effective job of closing down the country and controlling it. And that, that is a great advertisement for the Chinese system and in a world where there is a clash of systems and where there are countries that are making political and institutional choices that could go in one way or the other, and repeatedly so, sort of all the time, you know, China comes out and is looking stronger. But there's the alternative that's been raised now, which was that they couldn't keep a handle on this you know, modern research they then deliberately clamped down after the accident. And it gives more agency and responsibility to the elites to the Chinese system, which might then tarnish their image in this battle of systems. And that I think is an interesting question. I'm not sure it'll ever play out exactly like that. But to me, I agree on the scientific side that we, we probably should act as if it happened, whether or not it actually did, but that there still is some you know, mileage. I mean, there is a lot of anger you know, about COVID 
a lot of that's being directed at the management of COVID inside of individual countries, but you know, some will be directed outwards and it needs somewhere to go. And so that to me, I think is, is worth keeping an eye on. But I think ultimately, yeah, as you say, we are never going to know. All right, Alan, well, let's let's wrap up. We've been going for a while. A final segment, reading, listening and watching. What do you have for us this week? I've been reading David Brophy's from Sydney University's new book, China Panic, Australia's Alternative to Paranoia and Pandering, which is published by La Trobe University Press. At the moment, the Australian publishing industry seems to be churning out China books at the rate of one a week. Have you got got yours in the pipeline? (laughs) No. Must be coming. You and I have talked before about the absence of much fresh thinking in the China discussion in Australia. And the thing I like about Brophy's book is not that I agree with it all. Indeed, there are parts of his analysis that I would contest. But I did enjoy the way those disagreements provoked me to thinking in new ways or forcing me to bolster the defence of my own position on some of these issues, including the US relationship. Brophy is a China scholar, but an expert on the Uyghurs, and he's an activist in that area. So he can be as critical as the PRC as some of the China hawks, but he's good on the need for us to confront racism in our approaches to China and is critical of the way that we use the idea of Australian values. So stimulating and well worth reading. Okay, thanks, Alan. My main recommendation is an article published or written by the former British Prime Minister Tony Blair in the New Statesman a few weeks ago, which talks about the Labor Party in the UK, but is also broader on the challenge facing progressive politics. As our listeners will know, for the past four years plus, I've been obsessed with the intellectual right in US politics in particular under Trump and where it's going and how it can sort of adapt itself to the Trump phenomenon. And I think maybe I'm beginning a new obsession because Blair points out, and this is certainly true in, in the UK and I think somewhat true in Australia as well, that if the right of centre political parties, especially the populist right, can adopt left-leaning economic messages and adopt economic policies that you would normally see coming from a left or centre party, but also maintain their traditional emphasis on cultural conservatism and nationalism, then that might squeeze out any space for a progressive political agenda. And so we're seeing the Labour Party in the UK really struggle with this, first under Jeremy Corbyn and now under Keir Starmer. And I guess we'll see whether the Australian Labor Party can manage this with the election coming next year. Now, Blair's answer to this question is for the left movement to adopt a policy agenda that focuses on adapting to a world that's been disrupted by technology. And I think you could easily then sort of pair that with a a Green New Deal climate change agenda. But, you know, it, it still remains to be seen whether it can be a compelling political message to the extent that Boris Johnson seems to have been so successful in the UK and coronavirus response notwithstanding that the coalition in Australia has been as well. So that, I think, is a, the beginning of an, an intellectual discussion that I think will be worth following in the months and years ahead. Second, Alan, given that you, you asked if I had a book in the pipeline, I'd certainly not on on Australia-China, but I do have an article that has been accepted in the AIIA's actual journal that it sponsors, the Australian Journal of International Affairs, that I've also put up a sort of a a pre-edited version on a publicly available website called SSRN, which I'll I'll post in the show notes. I mean, it's one that you've actually read in draft form, you and many other friends and colleagues, and it's about 
Australia-China relations, but it tries to understand the debate through the the lens of a theorist. You know, I, I've written it with Nathan Attrell, who's got a PhD from the Crawford School, and we sort of try to pass the debate in Australia into different categories based upon your theoretical understanding of China. What are the sources of its intentions, and what are you worried about when you when you see the management of major power relations by the US and China? And so we try to put arguments that we have seen expressed in popular commentary into different categories, and we use COVID nineteen episode, and in particular, the call by Foreign Minister Payne for an inquiry into the origins back in April of last year, and all of the response that generated both from Beijing itself and in Australian commentary as our source material for the text that we study and we try to categorise. You know, there is, you know, as you say, so much being written. Some of it is valuable because it offers new evidence. Some of it is valuable because it sort of, as you say about Brophy's book, you know, it challenges us to think about our own positions and to formulate, to strengthen our own positions in light of how we disagree with what was said. Our contribution is to try to kind of give a broader frame. And I think our main audience really is students, those who are coming to the debate new and who haven't made up their minds about China, a way of thinking about the different assumptions that underlie various positions. One in particular that has been a, a source of difference between you and me, I think, is whether or not we should think about China as a quote-unquote normal rising power that does what all rising powers have done over history, or whether China is exceptional, unique, based upon its own internal political system and other bits, you know, its culture, its values, and its history, and so forth. And that's one way you can distinguish the debate, whether how you see China and what is the source of its intentions. So that's one way. And so I'll, I'll post the link if those who are interested, you should be able to access the paper in its sort of raw form before it's being edited. And it's, I don't know whether it'll be useful or not, but it's it's, it's certainly my, it's my book, just a bit shorter. And, and Well, I'm really, really interested, going to be, as you say, I've seen an earlier draft, Baron, and I'm really interested to see where you come out on this. It was a, a really original way of looking at, at the question. Thanks, Alan. Okay, well, we'll wrap it up there. So that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. Today, we thank Mitchell McIntosh for audio editing and also, of course, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.